Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. If you're local to the San Francisco Bay Area, UP Academy, our progressive elementary school, is now enrolling for fall of 2022. So welcome, Rebel Educators, to this episode of the Rebel Educator Podcast. Welcome, Rebel Educators. I'm here today with Homa Tavangar. Homa is co-founder of the Big Questions Institute, an organization that believes designing a better future for our children and the world is a moral obligation for schools. Big Questions Institute embraces fearless inquiry. They strive to live this in their ongoing humble posture of learning, openness to new ideas and methods, and commitment to honesty and truth-telling. And actually, last season, we had her co-founder, Will Richardson, as a guest on Rebel Educator as well. Homa is also principal at Global Advisory Services and the Oneness Lab. She works with corporations, K-12 schools, associations, nonprofit organizations, universities, and content producers to create global and inclusive workplaces, stories, strategy, curricula, culture, and inspiration. She brings together a range of experiences and current research to create conditions that build empathy, unity, and growth. So welcome, Homa. Thank you so much, Tanya. Great to talk to you. You too. I'd love to hear more about the Big Questions Institute. It's a new organization that was formed during the pandemic. And honestly, I found the Big Questions Institute when I saw a workshop that was about fearless inquiry. I was like, ooh, this like this is interesting. I haven't seen these words together. I wonder what they're doing. And yeah. so I checked it out. But it's super bold to start an organization during a pandemic. So can you share a little bit about why it was formed and why it was formed now? <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, to be fair, Will and I did one workshop before the pandemic, and it was about appreciative inquiry. We had been having some conversations because our paths had been crossing at various conferences that we were either presenting at or attending. And, you know, we're talking about it was kind of interesting because he was working on questions around technology and innovation and change. I was working around questions of globalization, bringing the world into the classroom cultural, racial, global competencies, inclusion, empathy, equity. And so between the two of us, it was like, wow, we are really thinking about some big questions. And so we started, we said, wouldn't it be interesting to do one? It was an in-person workshop toward the end of 2019. It was, as I said, appreciative inquiry. We called that workshop a big questions institute because we were going to see what were people's big questions? And then when the pandemic hit a few months later, it was an interesting sort of an organic process where the conversations that we were having, we found these are actually useful to open up and have these on a broader scale with educators. And as we began to have more and more conversations, we realized that, first of all, if we can help facilitate deep inquiry and what we called fearless inquiry because this was a scary time. And what we needed was 
leadership that is honest and trust building, but there is an element of exploration and that to us, there's a lot of fearlessness and courage that is needed right now and not fearless answering. So we're not coming in pretending like we have the answers, but we want to be really honest about what is happening out there in the world. And so part of our role is sort of sense-making. And what we found is that in the pandemic, what educators have needed is some critical friends to help with the sense-making. And as we've done that, we naturally started compiling the questions that everybody's asking. And that's how we came up with our ebook that we're giving away for free. I don't know if Will was on your podcast when we had our book, but it was released about a year ago and we're about to issue a new version of the nine big questions schools must answer so they don't go back to normal because normal wasn't so great to begin with. And we're giving that book away. It's a free download. We're really deliberate about that. But all of this, just sort of like my run-on sentence right now, it sort of organically grew out of the conversations, the learning that we were doing with our existing clients and friends and collaborators. And so the Big Questions Institute has actually grown in an amazing way, especially through the pandemic. It's grown in a way that we actually could not have ever imagined. And we are really just hoping to be as responsive as we can in a process of helping educators build capacity to be responsive, relevant, more just, create the schools that we hope for, and yet oftentimes we feel so far away from. Yeah, something you said right at the end there is helping educators build capacity. And that's something that I keep hearing a lot about from both sides of the spectrum, one that educators are really just overloaded. They're asked to do too many things and too much and continually given new directives and new procedures and new policies that they have to institute on top of the other ones while adding new curriculum and new, you know, (laughs) different things that they're supposed to continue to teach. So there's all these things continually piling on top without really taking anything off. Mm -hmm. First, you can't continue that in a cycle. It doesn't work. Right. But then how do we look at how we build capacity and look at, you know, how do we balance those things? How do we figure out what to take out and what to put in? And how do we work with our educators so that they build more of those skills to handle more of those things more effectively? Yeah, that's such an important question. And at the heart of our work, we are often looking at what will you subtract? What will you leave behind? A metaphor that's been really powerful for us comes from the essay by Arundhati Roy that was published at the very start of the pandemic, where she talked about the pandemic is a portal. And when she talks about the portal, she talks about, you know, this isn't the first time that there's a pandemic that has caused this really important sort of reckoning moment, this gateway between one world and the next. But this one is like those past ones. And if we think of the pandemic as a portal, and we often invite educators to kind of go through the portal with us to examine, explore, imagine. And Arundhati Roy talks about, are you going to 
carry the carcasses of your dead ideas, your data banks, your dead rivers and smoky skies? Or will you travel lightly through the portal and carry only what is essential and what really we think about our first question in the nine questions book is what is sacred? So we start with what is sacred. And we always ask educators, what is sacred to you about school? That answer forms the foundation of what basically what you'll carry with you through the portal of the pandemic. And there has to be some leaving behind, some subtraction. So we are very cognizant of the need to build capacity to let go also and not just keep adding on because it is the weight of that and the exhaustion and the feeling of overwhelm the social emotional toll that it's taking in addition to just the pressure to produce you know all of that is weighing so heavily on everybody and i think particularly on educators and often we're being asked to carry over with us structures that just don't make sense anymore. And we often will say, you know, as we look to the context of the larger world, and then we want to make sense of them in terms of what schools need to be doing, we'll often say, you know, it's not 1919 anymore, and it's not even 2019 anymore. So there are a lot of structures we're carrying over from that factory model of school from all the various iterations since before the pandemic that we need to really examine and leave some behind. And that's part of the design challenge. Yeah, there's so much talk about redesigning school and reinventing school. And I love the idea of going back to what is sacred? What do we need to hold on to? Yeah. And for a lot of people, I almost feel like that structure is sacred. That 50-minute class with a bell ringing there's some sanctity to that mm. and eight to three school day and breaking down and like all of these things that we do. So as we're looking at redesigning and reimagining schools, do you see schools moving away from some of these sacred cows and looking at like the humanity of what is sacred in school, right? Like we need to build skills and character and the ability to work together and the ability to understand each other and how yeah. to live in a global world. Right, right. So you're touching on the answer. We have asked the question of what is sacred to, I don't know, tens of thousands of educators over the last couple years. And before that, the question was being touched on as well. And we have sort of archival answers on padlets from districts and international schools and independent schools and like every kind of school structure you can imagine all over the world, all over North America. And universally, there is no exception. Everybody says, and I will encourage your audience to go back and ask your colleagues the question of what is sacred. What do you hope to see in your school in 10 to 20 years? They always talk about relationships connection. It's always a human-centered answer. Joy, love, justice. That's what's sacred. We never, ever, ever hear curriculum, schedule, assessment, tests, grades. We never, ever hear 
those structures of school that we spend basically all our time, energy, and financial resources on. So if we were to start with what's sacred and then plan backwards from there with the recognition of we want schools that are more relevant, just, sustainable, healthy in every sense of the word, what could it look like? And one thing that gives me a lot of hope is that human beings have the capacity for not just empathy, but also imagination. And those are uniquely human qualities. And when we design using our human capabilities, because that's what's at the heart of the answer of what's sacred, the outcomes are actually, I think, much closer to what we would hope to see in a school. And that gives me hope because it's possible. It's hard and it's uncomfortable but it's possible. And I think that maybe one thing the pandemic has taught us is that we can, stealing from other people who say we can do hard things, I think we can also sort of live with and work through discomfort and that we've been uncomfortable. And not only because of COVID, but because of the racial reckoning that we're having in the United States and around the world. So many things that If we don't confront and we don't get uncomfortable, I think the consequences, that's what's scary to me. So the fearless inquiry is worth it. It's worth being in the discomfort now. If we, and I assume everybody cares about the kids. So if we care about the kids, it's worth doing that. And we've seen some pretty hopeful and promising beginnings, only the beginnings of designing for what we're thinking of as education for humanity. And we often talk about if our students, as so many institutions, as so much of what's been happening in schools and beyond is breaking, our students need to be civilization builders. And so if our students are seen as civilization builders, how will we treat them differently? And how will we structure what we think of as learning in a new way. Yeah, I feel like I've had an amazing opportunity to do that in launching a school and that we were able to look at, you know, what do we want these students to turn out like and work backwards from there. And it's something that's afforded when you're starting new. It seems like it's much harder to change when you have large organizations that are already in place. And then so how do you create that alignment between What is education for humanity? Really, like, how do we set these young people up to rebuild themselves after COVID, to rebuild their mental health and their social connections, but also to work on rebuilding so much of the earth that we've destroyed in a climate of crisis, right? That there's so many things they need to build. So how do we create that education when we're so misaligned between the things that we're doing every day and the things that we say are important and sacred to us? That's the big question. It is the big question. (laughs) You know, so we are working with a range of different kinds of schools from more like a startup independent school, which it's hard, but that's definitely the better place to be in a startup position where you don't have all the traditions and so many old structures baked in. So there's no question about that. 
I think there are a lot of just different structures that help guide us where it's really hard. One example comes from the work of Margaret Wheatley, who describes the idea of islands of sanity. And so in an island of sanity, you're not trying to solve every problem for everybody all the time. Like it's not as global as much as I am a huge advocate of global citizenship, global mindedness, global competence. That begins at a very micro level in my local community, in my personal mindset and life. And likewise, this idea of islands of sanity where you start with your sphere of influence. So it might be your family, it might be your classroom, it might be your team or your grade, and it might be a couple of things to begin as a demonstration. So epic, global, like we throw those words around and then when it comes down to it, it can be small steps and that's okay. A lens that we're using that's been really powerful to kind of get there is through storytelling and stories. And we do some work that is what we think of as like a story audit. And the story audit basically entails being honest about the stories that you're telling in your school. And basically, almost everything you do tells a story, whether it's your disciplinary policy to your budget line items to signage on the walls at school. It's all part of a story. A lot of times, especially in established schools, long time and big districts and boards, they will do an assessment or an audit of their story, and it may not really be what they were hoping to see. And then we'll say, okay, if you had to write the headlines, Of the stories of your school? What are the stories of success, the stories of learning, the stories of equity? Write those headlines for today. What would you want those headlines to be, let's say, in 20 years? Write those headlines. And that gap between the future story or headline and the current one, that gap is where the work is. And so you can break it down into smaller and smaller, more micro sort of chunks that I think makes it a little bit more manageable. And, you know, it's sort of like just begin, you know, start the journey with a single step because otherwise it does feel overwhelming. And it is a balance between systems thinking and seeing things systemically and working to change systems while also taking those small manageable steps. And that it can feel like there's a conflict between the two. We also really believe in learning in community. So learning in community means sharing and learning from each other and learning from each other's experience, I think can also help to take the small steps and the big strides as well. But unfortunately, there isn't a formula. I wish there was. But each culture, each environment, each history tradition is going to determine how the change process goes. But I think it's not only possible, but it's urgent. So we have to do that hard work. Yeah, I think that's part of it is I think so many of us feel that urgency. And so it feels like taking those small steps in our own community and that local, like it's just not big enough, fast enough. 
and we want to make bigger change and create things. But whether it's like an island of sanity or the way you start a revolution, right? You mm-hmm. you create all of these different points of dissonance and resistance and change. And all of these things combined bring in the whole. And so it's each of us doing those little things in our communities and in our schools that add up to big change over time. Yeah. And what that can look like is the idea of emergent strategy. And we love some of the work of Adrienne Marie Brown, who wrote the book Emergent Strategy. But the idea that, you know, it's sort of like these little steps, they're almost like little dots and pixels. But eventually, that pixelated picture, something starts to emerge out of all those pixels together. And you may be one dot in that pixel, and that's worth it. I think that's one way to see it. Yeah, without you, the picture isn't complete. That's right. (laughs) You were also talking a lot about, you know, creating the storyline and what is the storyline and does it align with what is sacred to you and with what your philosophy and mission and vision is. And it's something that we look at a lot in business. I think that a lot of people outside of education look at the world that way as well as, you know, what does the company stand for? Are the things that they're doing aligned with what they say they are? But it's often something that schools haven't taken the time to look at other than, oh, yeah, we created these five core values. It's in our student handbook. And now we're going to teach this way. Right. (laughs) And so taking that time to realign is so important. Yeah, there's so much incoherence between those vision and values and practice. Or even like, is there a shared definition of learning? If you go from one classroom to another, is that definition of learning sort of coherent with each other and part of a larger vision? And your students, even the youngest students, can see themselves as part of being a helper. It doesn't have to all be huge and macro to feel like a global citizen, to feel like you are a champion of justice. That starts in the playground, in the cafeteria, with the book I'm choosing, you know, whatever it might be. So I love to constantly make that connection between hyperlocal and macro, sort of zoom in, zoom out. In today's language, zoom is everywhere. Yeah, as you're talking, I pictured a five-year-old wearing a superhero cape that's a champion of justice on the back. Like, yes, he's a champion. Yes, that's my superhero (laughs) power. Like I always say, if your orientation is asking students what problem they want to solve over what do you want to be when you grow up, where what problem you want to solve, it's very iterative. It isn't so high stakes. I can make mistakes. I can experiment. I can be curious. I can be creative. I feel like I'm part of the world. That's where meaning and purpose, which are linked to joy and happiness, it's like there's this golden thread between all of those themes. And those are the kinds of questions that really give me hope. We'll say it took me until my 40s to be able to answer the question, what problem do you want to solve? Yeah. But can you imagine, like, I don't know, were you asked that question when you were five? Did you have practice growing up with that question so that it becomes part of your mindset of the human being that you are in this world and your community? So I think that's one of the very big impacts that we can make with even the youngest kids. Absolutely. Talking about the youngest kids, since I run an elementary school, I love to hear stories of when my guests were in elementary school. 
So I'd love it if you could share a story that you remember back from that time from elementary school. Ah, okay. So uh, a little over 10 years ago, I wrote my first book, Growing Up Global, Raising Children to Be at Home in the World. And while I was writing that, I actually had to excavate a lot of my own stories of like, how did I get here and, and what were some of the ideas? And one of them from elementary school that is very dear to me is, so I was born in Iran and I went to elementary school in Fort Wayne, Indiana, not the kind of typical straight line. <laughs> and this was before the revolution, Iranian revolution. So this is like in the early 70s. And we had, I remember in my elementary school, public elementary school, there was an international day or night or some event. I remember vaguely in the gymnasium. And it was so exciting that Iran, Italy, and Ireland were a row together. And so my friends who were Irish and Italian heritage, along with me, Iranian, we were in this row together. And I just remember how exciting it was to share my culture. At the time, it was, you know, there's a lot of problem with exoticizing a culture, but it was sort of oh, the Persian carpet and the royal, the beautiful queen from Iran and all this. And so it was from my like seven-year-old mind's eye. It was very exciting. And I remember up until 1979 being very encouraged and excited about my own heritage and culture. And then I was in middle school. By the time the Iranian revolution happened, it was a precipitous drop in empathy and interest. That's a whole other story of associating people of my heritage with terrorists, hostage takers, American flag burners, horrible things that are part of the revolution, the regime, and not an individual. But prior to that, I remember a lot of very fun memories of sharing who I was and having these kinds of experiences that made it kind of fun and exciting. So my elementary years were very encouraging in that way. And I think that's something that I carried with me of the joy of learning about where people come from and who they authentically are in their own voice, again, from a very young age that has stayed with me. And in many ways, I kind of been on this quest to help people find that again. How can people get in touch with you or how can people learn more? Well, lots of ways. Easy is probably my Twitter is at HOMATAV, H-O-M-A-T-A-V. You can go to bigquestions.institute to learn about our big questions work. Onenesslab.com is the work that we're doing with justice, equity, diversity and inclusion across many different kinds of organizations. I also have too many websites. I have a Homa <laughs> Tavangar, all A's in Tavangar, homatavangar.com website, but I'm pretty easy to find because now I appreciate my name. Not a lot of people have my name, so you can Google me and pretty easy to find. So I hope people will reach out. We love to have conversations that are exploratory and generative that's been one of the most exciting things about starting the Big Questions Institute amidst the pandemic has been 
all the conversations that we've really had the privilege of having with educators all over the world. And we learn from every single one of them. Conversations that are so needed. They certainly are. Thank you so much, Homa. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. I'd invite you to check out rebeleducator.com, where you can see all of our upcoming workshops, webinars, and professional development opportunities. Upacademysf.com, where you can see our current progressive elementary school in action. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Keep resisting tradition, Rebel Educators.